Well, good morning to you. Uh, one of the things that you'll find out about me is that I try to begin services and classes promptly on time. Uh, so that's just uh, a little thing that I do. So it's 9.30 and I'm told that the hour cometh and now is, so here we are. Uh, we're going to begin. Um, what are we going to do over the course of the next several weeks? Uh, as you, most of you know, I'm heading off uh, for a portion of the summer, uh, leading a trip to Ireland, so I thought we needed to do something that was relatively brief, which is a difficult thing for me, um, as you will soon discover. Um, but I thought since we started with the Sermon on the Mount last Sunday in my sermon, as we talked about salt and light, it perhaps would be appropriate for us to begin by taking a look at the Sermon on the Mount again. Uh, this time we're going to begin with the Beatitudes. How far we are going to get, I really don't know. At the very least, what I hope it will do is whet your appetite. And so even if we don't finish with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5 and following, uh, you'll be inspired to go ahead and read it for yourself. Now that may be the case that you've read it before, uh, but any time a new teacher comes on the scene, there's bound to be something new that you haven't heard before. So that's what we're going to take a look at. Uh, I want to encourage you uh, to invite other parishioners to come and be a part of this. Um, teaching is a big part of my ministry, and so I'm always looking for opportunities to do so. Now, let me just say a couple of things to you about the way I teach. Generally, I do a lecture style. Uh, you may have questions. I try to leave a few moments at the end if you have any questions for you to ask me those questions. So um, just hold off on your questions unless there's something you really don't understand. In the event that there's something you're just baffled by, go ahead and raise your hand and I'll be sure to call on you. The other thing I want to encourage you to do is bring your Bibles. Um, I looked around and discovered there were no Bibles in this building. So that's something that I'm hoping we're going to be able to remedy in the near future. Um, but I do encourage you to bring your Bibles to church. Um, it's okay for Episcopalians to do that, believe it or not. Uh, it's, it's perfectly legitimate and I encourage you to do so. Uh, the prayer book is a wonderful book, but you're better to have, you have two hands, so bring two books, if you will. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. There are lots of modern translations out there, and I encourage you, if you don't have one, to get a modern version of the Bible. The authorized version, the King James Version, is a wonderful version. It's wonderful Elizabethan language. It, however, is not contrary to what many people may think, the most accurate translation of the Bible, uh, simply by virtue of the fact that we have discovered over the course of 400 plus years better manuscripts, better ancient manuscripts. Um, so there are lots of modern translations that are out there. I think the three best available for you right now are the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, or the New International Version, the NIV, which is a very readable version. I still use that in my private devotions. And the English Standard Version is really my favorite. Uh, it is a very accurate translation taken right from the Greek, word for word, from the original Greek and from the original Hebrew. The best thing about it, though, is they have managed to preserve, I think, the grandeur of the, ma of, of the language. So if you're looking for that, uh, a good translation of the Bible would be the English Standard Version of the Bible. You can get them online for a fraction of what you might pay in a bookstore. So let me just commend those to you and encourage you to bring your Bibles with you over the course of the next several weeks, particularly as we make our way through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So that's what we're going to take a look at today. Any questions about that before I begin? Because once we begin, it'll be like drinking out of a fire hydrant, probably. Okay? So that's the plan for the next couple of weeks. Um, 
And then uh, we'll probably do something different when we come back uh, in the fall. But this is for the next several weeks, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, uh, some of you might even have the Bible on your iPhone. Uh, it's perfectly fine to pull those up right now. Uh, please don't do that to me in church. It's very disconcerting when you look and think, are they, paying it? are they actually reading the Scripture or are they on eBay right now as I'm preaching? I'm not entirely sure. My hope is that uh, you will be with me. I'm just going to read through the first few verses of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, verses 1 through 12. And then we're going to come back and we're going to take a look at these in somewhat closer detail. So, seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'm going to put outlines up on the screen most weeks. Uh, the purpose of doing that is so that if you like to take notes, and you want to go back and think through this again, pray through this again, you've got somewhat of an outline, and perhaps some things that will jog your memory and get you going a little bit. Okay, so that's the purpose of the outline. So feel free to bring notepads, feel free to bring your Bibles with you as we work our way through. And it looks like I'm somewhat off the screen, I'm sorry about that. Since the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, it has been common in Protestant circles to speak of the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ in terms of three categories. And those three categories are prophet, priest, and king. Uh, Jesus has commonly been referred to as the great prophet. Now, of course, when the Bible speaks of a prophet, it doesn't mean prophet in the sense that we understand the term in 21st century America. Uh, oftentimes, when people think of a prophet, they think of somebody who does what? Well, somebody who prophesies in the sense of foretells the future. Somebody like a Nostradamus. Every time we get close to the end of a year, you'll see all of those tabloids in the grocery store at the Harris Teeter or the Piggly Wiggly or wherever it may be, and they're foretelling the future, prognostications for the coming year. And most of us, when we think about prophets, that's what we assume a prophet does. His primary work is to foretell the future. But that's not actually the case in the Bible. Sometimes prophets did in their ministry, foretell the future. But most of the time when prophets were speaking, they were speaking into their own particular context and their own particular time. Now, sometimes what they said had a dual application for the present and for the future. But oftentimes, when it had an application for the future, they were not aware of it. So a better way to understand the ministry of a prophet is not as someone who foretells the future, but a prophet is one who speaks on behalf of God. He speaks the oracles of God. 
we would call that person today a preacher. All right? That is really what the Old Testament word prophet meant. A prophet was one who came as a herald of God's words. So a prophet is a preacher. And of course, that is what Jesus was par excellence. He was one who spoke on behalf of God because, of course, he was God incarnate. John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. But Jesus spoke. And what is interesting about Jesus' ministry is that he saw preaching as his primary vocation during his earthly ministry. Did you know that? Jesus saw preaching as his primary vocation. Now, we all know that he came to be the Savior of the world, of course. But in terms of his three-year earthly ministry, Jesus placed a high priority on preaching. One of the things you will discover about me is that I do too. I place a high priority on preaching. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we know that how are people to believe unless someone what? Preaches to them. There's a fascinating story in the first chapter of Mark's gospel where Jesus has just healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. You remember the story? And all these people come rushing from the countryside. The word is out. There's a miracle worker in our midst, a man who can lay his hand on you and heal you of a fever. There's a man who can cleanse lepers. There's a man who can make the palsied whole. And so what happens is that all these people come from all over the countryside to hear and to see Jesus. And Jesus does. He spends his time healing them and ministering to their needs. But of course, in the first century, there was no electricity. So when night came, the world, as I said last week in the sermon, became a very dark place. All of those people went home. Those people who did not have an opportunity to be touched by Jesus or to be healed by Jesus, where do you think they were bright and early the next morning? They were back at Peter's mother-in-law's house, knocking on the door. And the story goes that the disciples got up, saw this crowd of people, and went looking for Jesus, and he was nowhere to be found. He was up and he was out. And this alarmed them. And so they go searching for Jesus and somebody gets the bright idea, oh, I know where he is. He's out praying. And you can almost hear Peter said, well, this is no time for praying. <laughs> and you can almost hear Peter say it. You know, and Peter was a man of action. There's no time for prayer. Go find Jesus. Track him down. And so they track him down and indeed he is praying. And, and they say to him, what are you doing here? Everybody is looking for you. And what happens? Jesus said, yes. Let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Let me tell you something. A church that does not place a high priority on the preached and taught word is a church that will never flourish and thrive. This was the chosen vocation of our Lord himself, preaching, proclaiming the herald, the good news of the kingdom of God. So naturally, since the time of the Reformation, people have referred to Jesus as a great preacher, and he was a great preacher. We're going to study the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher the world has ever known, the Sermon on the Mount. And if you think my sermons are long, and I think this is just the Reader's Digest condensed version, by the way, that you get in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So Jesus was a prophet in the sense that he spoke on behalf of God. He was also, of course, a priest. What does a priest do? A priest is one who offers 
sacrifice. He offers a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they would offer sacrifices to atone for people's sins. In the Roman Catholic Church, the priest offers the sacrifice of the Mass. And even in our tradition, our clergy are called what? Priests. Now, we are priests not in the sense of the Old Testament Aaronic priesthood, and we're not priests in the same sense as Roman Catholic priests. The English retained at the time of the Reformation the word priest because we are offering up a sacrifice as well, but it's not a bloody sacrifice. It's what? We say it every Sunday in the liturgy. A sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Have you heard those words before? They're right there in the Eucharistic prayers. We are offering up, and here we present unto thee, O Lord, our souls and bodies to be a holy, living sacrifice unto thee. So we are offering ourselves up. We are also offering up a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. But that's what a priest does. He offers sacrifice. And of course, Jesus offered the ultimate sacrifice. He was not only the priest, he was the victim. He offered himself. This is why the author of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. But we have a great high priest who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet what? Did not sin. So we have one who offers a sacrifice on our behalf. What can we bring to God that he should accept us? What, what, what can we offer to God, be honest with yourself, that you cannot or that he cannot provide for himself? Nothing. So what does God do? He provides the sacrifice, the atonement for our sins in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is a great prophet. He speaks for God. He is also the great priest and the victim. He offers himself as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. But the New Testament is very clear. Jesus also came to be. And in many respects, this is the most important part, to be a king. Now, we hear a lot about the prophet part. We hear a lot about Jesus as our Savior, our priest. But people don't pay a whole lot of attention to the idea of Jesus as the king. In spite of the fact that we have a whole day dedicated in the liturgical calendar to Christ the King, Christ the King Sunday. But the kingship of Jesus Christ is a central theme of the New Testament and of the Lord's ministry. And I would submit to you that you cannot really even begin to understand the message of the New Testament unless you understand that Jesus Christ came to be king. Now, bear in mind that in the first century, kings were not like kings today. Queen Elizabeth II just celebrated her 90th birthday, the longest reigning monarch in Britain's history, the longest reigning monarch in modern history. How much power does Queen Elizabeth II have? Very little. Very little. She's a constitutional monarch. In the ancient world, Nobody ruled or reigned at the pleasure of the people. Kings were absolute rulers. They were sovereign over the affairs of men. If you received an invitation, it wasn't an invitation, it was a summons. This is interesting. If you're invited to a garden party at Buckingham Palace today, it still, for tradition's sake, says you are commanded by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II to attend. And then on the bottom in very fine print it says, if unable to attend, 
please let us know. But you are commanded because she is what? She's the sovereign. She is the queen. Well, a king in the ancient world was an absolute ruler, an absolute sovereign. So when the reformers referred to Jesus Christ, not only as our prophet, our priest, but our king, they were saying that Jesus Christ is the absolute sovereign over the affairs of mankind. And this whole notion of the kingship of Christ and the kingdom of God is central to an understanding of the New Testament and to Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 3, you have the story of John the Baptist. You all know that John the Baptist was a forerunner of Jesus, wasn't he? He appeared on the scene to do what? To prepare the way. He was called the morning star. But when John the Baptist appeared down there in the Judean wilderness, proclaiming a message of repentance, he told the people to repent. Why? Maybank's over there on his phone. I think he's looking up Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Uh, no, he's on eBay. Excuse me. So... <laughs> Matthew chapter 3, verse 2 says what? What does John say? That's right. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is to say, the kingdom has arrived. That's why you need to repent. He didn't say, well, you need to repent because you're a sinner. That was true, but that's not why the people were to repent. They were to repent because the king was coming. The kingdom of God had arrived. And if you turn to Matthew chapter 13, one of the things that you will notice is that Jesus talked at great length about the kingdom. He told a whole series of parables. The parable of the sower. You know the story about the sower. In that, he talks about how the parable of the sower. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. And it's sometimes referred to as the parable of the four soils. But Jesus refers to the heart and the importance of the heart, but he says it's the kingdom that we're really talking about. In the parable of the weeds, which begins at Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, same thing. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat. Verse 31, he put another parable before them. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. And over and over again, what you discover is that Jesus tells these parables, all of which, them, all of which are word pictures, which are meant to give us an understanding of this concept of the kingdom. And even in the Lord's Prayer, What's one of the petitions that we make in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you see, from the moment that Jesus appears on the scene, John the Baptist telling people to repent. Why? Because the kingdom has arrived. Jesus throughout all of his famous parables, talking about what? The kingdom of God. And even in the Lord's Prayer, we are taught to pray, thy kingdom come. So I want you to understand the kingship of Christ, the kingdom of God is of the utmost importance. It is a central theme of the New Testament. If you want to understand the Bible, you must understand that notion of the kingdom of God. Furthermore, it was a claim to kingship that God Jesus killed, wasn't it? The Jewish people brought Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and they brought charges against him. A Pilate went in and examined Jesus, 
brought him out and said, he's broken no Roman law. I've seen nothing that he's done that warrants death. And what did the people say in response? Well, they did say crucify him, but that wasn't the reason why Pontius Pilate put him to death. Pontius Pilate found no fault with Jesus. You'll even recall he went to the whole trouble of washing his hands. I find no fault with this man. He's done nothing wrong. But the people responded, this man claims to be a king. And we have what? No king but Caesar. And when Pontius Pilate heard those words, he became very anxious. If you're a Roman governor in the first century, your responsibility was to maintain the peace. And not only that, the authority of Caesar. You were not to allow or to permit any other king that would threaten Caesar's rule. And so it was on that basis that Jesus was put to death. It wasn't because he claimed to be a savior. It was because he claimed to be a king. And there was no king but Caesar. And on that basis, Jesus was put to death. Now here's the irony. When he was put to death, what did the placard over his head read? The king of the Jews. And the Pharisees and the scribes went to Pontius Pilate and they said, don't write this man is the king of the Jews. Write that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pontius Pilate responded, what I have written, I have written. So from the moment of his birth, from the moment of his minute, the beginning of his ministry with John the Baptist and the baptism in the Jordan River to the moment of his death, Jesus is acclaimed and declared to be a what? A king. A king. He is a king. Now this is important. Why? Because far too often we really don't understand what God is doing in history. We tend to think, and I said this in the sermon last week, that the whole purpose of Jesus Christ coming to earth is to do what? To save you and me so that we can go to heaven when we die. How many of you want to go to heaven when you die? I'm glad to see it. I've never met anybody who wants to go to hell, even out of a sense of curiosity. Of course we all want to go to heaven when we die. But that's really not what the Bible is all about. That's just an added bonus. If you read through the story of the Bible from the book of Genesis the whole way through to the book of Revelation, you realize God is doing something much bigger than that. N.T. Wright calls this getting the Adam project back on track. So here's what I'm going to do for you. And this is why I say it takes me a little while to get through some things. I am going to give you the whole story of the Bible right now in the time that we have left. You're going to get the whole message of the Bible. Here is what happens. The creator of the universe makes the world. You know the story of Genesis. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the surface of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there are two accounts of creation in Genesis, one in Genesis chapter 1, one in Genesis chapter 2. But in both of those accounts, one of the things that you'll notice is that everything builds towards a climax. God is creating the world. He's breeding order out of chaos. But the pinnacle of God's creative activity is what? You and me. Of all the creatures that God makes, there's only one creature that is made in his image that bears his stamp, that is a reflection of his glory and his majesty, and that's you and me. That's why you, no matter who you are, no matter how many failures you have had in your life, that is why you are of 
infinite value to God because you alone are made in his image as a reflection of his glory. I don't want to get into this too much, but this is one of the things that concerns me deeply about people who place an emphasis so much on animal rights that we forget that animals are different from human beings. Let me ask you a question. If your neighbor is drowning out there in a pond and you hate your neighbor, I mean, he's just an idiot. And your golden retriever, whom you love, faithful for 14 years, is out there drowning in the pond, who are you supposed to save? I'm not asking you who you are going to save. I'm asking you, who are you supposed to save? Why? They're a human being. They are made in the image of God. So God creates man in his image, a reflection of his glory and his majesty. And God gives man this magnificent charge, this magnificent job to be a steward of the creation, to rule over the creation, to reign, and to extend the blessings of Eden to the whole of the earth. That's the job of Adam. That's the job of Eve, to be God's regents, to reflect his glory and to be his representative in the created order. But Genesis chapter 3 tells us mankind was not satisfied with being number two. Mankind wanted to be what? Number one. Let me tell you something. That is the root of all sin. The root of all sin is not that somebody ate of a tree. The root of all sin is that every single one of us has within us a desire to be like God. You remember what happened to Eve? The serpent came to her and said, Ah, you're allowed to eat of every tree in the midst of the garden, except for one, that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why don't you go ahead and eat of that tree? And Eve responds what? God has said that if we eat of that tree, we will die. So God sets parameters. Why does he set parameters? Simply to remind them that he is God and they are not. You can eat of anything else, but I just want you to remember who you are and who I am and who we are in relationship to one another. So you can't eat of that tree. But the serpent responds with, ah, but God knows if you will eat of that tree, you will what? Be like him. And that was the sin of Eden, folks. It wasn't that she ate of the tree. It was that she ate of the tree because she had a desire to be like God. And that is the root of every single sin in your life and in my life. It is a desire to be like God. What does it mean to be like God? It means to be in charge. It means to be in control. It means to be the master of your own fate and the captain of your own destiny. And let me tell you, this kind of sin, I call it being OS positive, original sin positive, it comes out in all kinds of ways. Imagine you're in West Ashley and you're in a hurry and you're going down one of those long roads and you see the stoplight turn from green to yellow. Now the law says you're supposed to hit the pedal. Which pedal? <laughs> Be honest. Which, which, which pedal? When you're in a hurry and you're late for an appointment, which pedal do you hit? 
Well, if you're like me, you hit the accelerator and you go right on through that light. And then, lo and behold, you see another light, this time in your rearview window. And it's blue. And you get pulled over. And the police officer comes up and asks for your registration and your driver's license and informs you that you ran a red light. Now, are you angry with that police officer? I am. I'm frustrated. Because what? I had an agenda. I was going someplace, and I was stopped. Now, how many times have you ever been not in a hurry? And you're coming along, and you see the light, and it turns from green to yellow, and you hit the brake and come to a nice, easy stop, and the guy right next to you goes right through. And if you're like me, you turn to your wife and say, where is a cop when you need one? Isn't that what you do? Why is it okay for us to go through the light, but it's not okay for him to go through the light? Because you see, we want to be the masters of our own fate. We want to set the agenda. We want to say what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And that is the root of all sin. And that's what happened in Genesis. Mankind was not content with God being in the ascendancy. God being number one. We wanted to be number one. And so we turned against God. And when we turned against God, because we represented God, we fell. And all of creation fell with us. You understand how this works. We live in a democracy. Do your representatives in Congress, do their actions affect you? If they decide to raise your taxes, does that affect you? You better believe it. If they lower your taxes, does that affect you? Of course. Well, because we represented the whole of creation, when we fell and creation fell with us, all of the consequences of that were extended, not just to us, but to the whole of creation. And we have been dealing with that, folks, for centuries. Since the dawn of time, the world has been struggling. The Apostle Paul in Romans says, the whole world moans as in travail, longing for redemption. Now, the question is this. What does God do? What does God do? The Adam project, what he intended for Adam, is off the tracks. What does he do? Well, I suppose he could have just washed his hand of the whole thing, wiped everybody else off the face of the earth, and said, let's start all over again and see if we can make a better go of it. But what you have to understand is that because God is a God of love and a God of mercy, and because he is the sovereign ruler of the universe, he is not about to let us thwart his plans. And so the rest of the Bible is the story of God getting that project back on track. What does he do? He calls a particular man named Abraham. And through Abraham, he calls a particular people, the nation of Israel. And through the nation of Israel, he begins to rebuild. And through the nation of Israel, there comes a unique Savior, a new Adam, Jesus Christ, a prophet, a priest, and a king. And Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice upon the cross for us and for our salvation, that by placing our faith in him, we can become a what? A new creation. Isn't that how the apostle describes this? As a new creation. And we can begin to live the way that God intended human beings to live at the very beginning. So that we can get the project back on track and live as God intended human beings to live 
until that day when Christ returns in glory and everything that is foul, everything that is broken, everything that is unjust, everything that is impure shall be made right and God shall be upon his throne and all shall be right with the world. And that's what the Bible is all about. It's about God getting the Adam project back on track and establishing his kingdom as it was intended to be on earth as it is in heaven. Now that's a whole lot bigger than just getting your ticket punched and going to heaven. That means you are part of a grand and glorious plan. And that's what this is all about. So, that's really what the Sermon on the Mount is about. The Sermon on the Mount is a picture for us of what it looks like when the project is back on the tracks. Now let me just pause there for a moment and see if you have any questions about that before we jump in any further. That's big stuff. But that's what this is all about. As you heard me say last week, you've not only been saved from something, you've been saved for something. To be the new Israel. Yes. Well, that's an interesting question. All right, I'm going to go off track here again. Just a, a sidebar, so to speak. Um, why do we think that God, I'm going to repeat the question right now. Um, why do we think, or why do I think, that God waited so long before getting the Adam Project back on track? Sending Jesus. Well, first of all, we really don't know. I think we could say a number of things. First of all, it seems like a long time to us. But we have to remember that because God is eternal, a day is like a thousand years. I think the other thing we have to remember is that God's timing is always perfect. It's always perfect. The New Testament says, at just the right time, or when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. So why, I don't know. It's the same sort of question as, well, why is he waiting so long to come back? Well, the honest answer is we don't know. Jesus didn't even know when he was coming back. He said only the Father knows. So that, that's part of the answer. But what is interesting about when he did send Jesus you know, Galatians says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. When the time was just right. There's an old expression in the theater that says, timing is everything. You know that expression? It means that the perfect actor knows how and when to say his line. Not a moment too soon or a moment too late. Timing is everything. Lucille Ball had perfect timing as a comedian. All right. So at just the right time, God sends forth his son. Now, what is interesting about the first century at the time of Jesus' arrival, the time of his birth in Bethlehem, is that it was just the right time, even from a secular point of view. Let me just give you a couple of examples. At the time that Jesus appeared on the scene, it was a relative period of peace throughout the world. It was the first time, really, that the world, the known world of the time, had peace. This was the age of the famed Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Now, from our vantage point, even during the Pax Romana, Rome was a brutal place. But for the most part, it was 
peaceful in comparison to what had gone before. Rome had managed, the Romans were very good administrators, they had managed to bring relative peace to the known world so that it was possible to travel throughout the Roman Empire without a whole lot of fear. That's the first thing to keep in mind. Second thing is that for the first time in the history of the world, at least since the time of the Tower of Babel, that was a common language. It was a lingua franca of the day. And it wasn't Latin. Latin was the official language of the empire, but it was not the language that most people spoke. The language that most people spoke, the language of commerce, was Greek. And almost everybody read Greek, which is why the New Testament, for example, is written in Greek. So you could go to almost any part of the Roman Empire, and so long as you spoke Greek, you could converse with people. Now think about that. You've also heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome. Ever heard that expression? Well, in the first century, it was almost literally true. Rome was the hub of a great wheel from which there extended spokes in nearly every direction. And that was because the only way for the Romans to keep peace was by force. And so the Roman legions would march out to all the points of the compass. And, and the wonderful thing about the Romans is that they didn't believe in going around things. If you were going to go from point A to point B, the shortest distance between point A and point B is a what? A straight line. And the Romans believed in that. They were great road builders. If you go to England today and parts of Italy and Greece, you can still travel to this day. Many of the highways are built over Roman roads. They're still there. Roman aqueducts. If you go to the Holy Land, you can still see Roman aqueducts that still carry water to places today. They were magnificent builders. Now you think about that. For the first time in history, relative peace. For the first time in history, you have roads going to every point of the compass. For the first time, you can go no matter where you go, and as long as you speak Greek, you can share a message. It had never been that way in the world. It has never been that way in the world ever since, following the collapse of the Roman Empire. This was a petri dish for the growth of Christianity. And so when the apostles appeared on the scene, they were able to go out and preach the gospel in a way that would have never been possible at any point other than that one point in history. So why did God wait so long? I don't know. But when he did do it, his timing was perfect. His timing was perfect. All right, his timing was perfect. So, First point here, understand the kingdom of God is a central theme of the New Testament. Never lose sight of that. Never lose the importance of that. But it's a misunderstood kingdom. Because most people, even Jesus' own disciples, didn't understand what kind of a kingdom it was. Uh, let me read to you a few passages from Mark chapter 10. Again, bring your Bibles. You'll benefit from it. Mark chapter 10. Verses 35 and following. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left in my kingdom is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. James and John come up to Jesus and they said, all right, you're proclaiming a kingdom. We know what kings are like. Kings in the first century, all powerful, all controlling. We know that a king is coming. It's been foretold in the Old Testament. We're anticipating you're the one. You're, you're performing all these miracles. You walk on water. You calm the waves. You cleanse lepers on the border of Samaria. You're the king. We believe you're the king. Now, when you get to your kingdom, hey, we'd kind of like to have a job. It's good to be close to the king, isn't it? It's good to be close to absolute power. In fact, on another occasion, or at least a variation of this same story, we're told that James and John didn't come up to Jesus on their own. They sent their mother. <laughs> they were Southerners, you see. They know that you get your, get your, you get your mother to, to work on your behalf. You're in good luck. That's what they do. They send their mother to come up and ask this question. Why? Because the kingdom that they were imagining was a physical kingdom. It was a kingdom like the kingdom they were familiar with, the Roman Empire. And when Jesus came, he was going to come and he was going to drive out those pagan polytheistic Romans and establish himself as the absolute king and they wanted to be close to that center of power because that's the kind of kingdom they were thinking of. That's what they were imagining. And I'd like to say that over the course of time, having spent three years with Jesus, they began to understand things differently, but they didn't. Even after the resurrection. Now think about the disciples on Good Friday. They've been following Jesus. They've come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Everybody's shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Save us now. Blessed is he who comes what? In the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Well, over the short span of just a week, those shouts of Hosanna in the highest become what? Crucify him. Crucify him. And of course, Jesus is crucified. The disciples are devastated. Everything that they had left home for, their families, their friends, they leave all of these things and they come to follow Jesus and lo and behold, now he's dead. And the dream is dashed to pieces. And they're in despair. But what happens? Three days later, Jesus rises again. Now, what do you think they're thinking? Oh, we thought he was the king. Then we realize he wasn't the king. But now he's been raised. He really is the king. And so in Acts chapter 1, we're told the disciples went up to Jesus and said, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still thinking in terms of a what? A physical kingdom. But the problem is, that's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to bring. Not a physical kingdom but a spiritual kingdom. Now, of course, the first thing that runs through most people's minds when they hear the word spiritual is, ah, oh, spiritual. I know what a spiritual thing is. It's not a real kingdom. A real kingdom is a kingdom of bricks, mortar, and stone. A real kingdom is where you see the guards outside Buckingham Palace. A real kingdom is where you see the legionnaires marching down the street. That's a kingdom. Spiritual kingdoms... What I'm going to show you next week is that a spiritual kingdom is what a real kingdom is all about. So if you want to learn more about this, you're going to have to come back next week. And you'll notice we haven't even gotten to the Beatitudes yet. But there's so much here. 
And when you begin to expand your mind and your imagination, and you begin to read the Bible in an entirely new light, let me tell you something. It will change you forever. It will change you forever. So I hope you'll come back next week. And I hope you'll bring your friends. Because you know what my dream is? My dream is that this whole room is going to be filled with people with their Bibles open, their pens in hand, taking notes, reading, marking, learning, inwardly digesting that we may be a people who, as I said last week, will be salt and light in the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. It is a two-edged sword. It is a lively word. Grant us, Lord, to make it a part of our lives, to drink it in, that it may transform us, that we may go forth and transform the world. For the sake of him who died for us and rose again, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.